0: you are listening to historically a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media i'm your host Esha. today we have satira from iran who's going to talk to us about the relationship between the nation of islam and the islamic republic of iran so thank you for joining us are you phd or masters in The University of Tehran? Uh,
1: I'm a PhD. I finished my PhD from the University of Tehran last October, actually. And what do you do now? I'm a a freelance researcher and uh, also an affiliated researcher with the Center for North American and European Studies at the University of Tehran. Wow, cool. What do you guys do there? Well, basically, we do research. Um, There are different organizations that refer to that research center for different projects that they have. And they allocate, based on areas of expertise, they allocate different projects to people. So uh, because I studied North American studies, usually they give me projects about either U.S.-Iran relations or the United States. And because my dissertation was about... The Nation of Islam as an African American movement. Oh, that's actually very interesting. Can we
0: talk about that actually today? Sure, sure. So the first thing that most people don't know was when, uh, right during the revolution, was this in seventy nine or eighty? I can't remember. But when they stormed the what they call the den of espionage or the embassy, mm-hmm. how do you pronounce it? How many? Or is it, am I pronouncing it right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Khomeini. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right, okay. I just wanted to make sure. Um. Okay. So there were some American Black people and women in the mm-hmm. embassy. And Ayatollah Khomeini said that Black people in America are also oppressed. And he ordered everyone to let them go. And they
1: l- left. Exactly.
0: So that's kind of where I'm familiar.
1: Yeah. And women too. Oh,
0: and yes, and women too. So the first thing is, did the Shah ever care or try to care about the plight of Black people in America?
1: That's not what uh, you would ever hear in his rhetoric. Okay. Uh, So no, that wasn't really a concern.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask this question both for Khomeini and the people in the revolution. So how did Khomeini, like when did he first, Become aware, interested, and/or like an advocate for all the discrimination that they feel in the U.S.
1: Uh, well, I think he was very well read on the history of the world as well as the history of the United States' uh, involvement in the Middle East, as would they call it. Uh, so when for, when he first started his movement and he took um, the early steps of his movements, about less than twenty years before the revolution actually took place, he already knew about you know, the struggle of his own people, but also about the struggle of a lot of uh, other oppressed nations across the world. And one thing about uh, the Shah of Iran, the Pahlavi Shah, I should say, he wasn't even aware of his own people's <laughs> struggles, let alone that of uh, you know, Black people in America. He was very detached from the realities of uh, uh, the society. Uh, oh, yeah. That's one reason that, according to many experts, he didn't really realize how people were against him. And that's why the fall of his, uh, you know, uh, monarchy happened very fast.
0: Yeah, I was like watching some interviews with the Shah and he just was so clueless about everything. And of course, if you're the Shah, no one's going to tell you oh my god uh you're wrong because people are Mm -hmm.
1: so he surrounds himself with yes men right right exactly uh even it is known among people that he was less powerful than his father because you know that the british supported his father and the u.s placed him after his father and uh yeah so um I mean, he wasn't even a a, a strong monarch or a strong king.
0: So then this new Shah uh, was put into power in the late 40s and early 50s. And I was watching this one documentary a few weeks ago. It was about this party he was having in what was known as the Old Persepolis. And then you saw that they did not even have streets or water or basics like that in that area. So he had to bring foreigners to create just literally the most basic things, right? (laughs) That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Ayatollah Khomeini made a statement condemning that party because of how poor people in Iran were. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't know that after the embassy was sieged they basically Mm -hmm. did a huge document dump that you can probably download somewhere which i've downloaded and you realize Mm -hmm. all the uh there was a lot of cia activity in order to prop up the shah right exactly yes so i don't know where to go next because i haven't completely read your thesis so um Can you tell me what happened next? How did there become a common understanding between Iran and the African-American struggle?
1: Well, even in the early steps of the revolution and the years before the collapse of the Pahlavi monarchy, uh, the revolution, Imam Khomeini talked about the struggle of the oppressed people across the world. And uh, you know the Iranian constitution mm-hmm. has an article which states that it's Iran's duty to support oppressed people of any religion or any nationality across the world. So that's uh, that has always been one idea of the Islamic Revolution and the Islamic Republic when uh, it was established, and that comes from Islamic teachings and Quranic teachings that uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Used and employed in his uh, political ideology and appealed to the people of Iran, but also to a lot of other nations across the world, because being oppressed by the Pahlavi monarchy and uh, its supporters kind of allied Iran with a lot of other nations that went through the same struggle, for example, including the Palestinian nation and African Americans. And those people who know about the struggle of the African-Americans, uh, like uh, Imam Khomeini and now Atulah uh, Mohamedi also knows, uh, because they're both well-read. It, this is like a common and uh, sh- a shared ideal, uh, because they have a shared struggle against oppression.
0: Okay, so there's two things. Around that time, one of the main anti-imperialist activities that was going on was the South African fight against apartheid, Mm -hmm. and I mean it was happening in the early to late eighties. How did people who were participants in the revolution react and support to that? And I'm just curious, was there any relationship between Nelson Mandela and
1: Khomeini? Uh, Yeah, I mean they supported each other, and um, you hear. Uh, Nelson Mandela talk about uh, the struggle of, uh, I mean, the, the victory of the revolution, and you also hear from Imam Khomeini talking about uh, Nelson Mandela's um, like revolution and uh, struggle for freedom. Um, I mean, even after that, uh, Nelson Mandela, when he met with uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the current supreme leader, he actually called him my leader so Aww. this is like a very famous yeah it's a very famous footage uh, where they meet and they like you know greet each other very warmly and Nelson Mandela calls him uh how are you my leader and so yeah I mean that's one that's, that's another thing that uh, uh Imam Khomeini and then Ayatollah Khamenei are remembered for Mandela also has famous quotes about Imam Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution in Iran. it's
0: an honor and a real
1: pleasure.
0: it's kind of funny because Iran was the first country to have a stamp of Malcolm X.
1: Exactly.
0: And it's funny because about two years ago, I believe somebody said something or did something racist against Serena Williams. And um, mm-hmm. Ahmadinejad uh, came on Twitter he <laughs> got and defended uh, uh, Serena Williams. And people were surprised. And then the next day, he was coding Huey. No, no, he was coding Tupac Shakur's poem about Huey Newton, and people were just surprised. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That that this was a long time coming. So, can you tell people more about this?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, I don't know who runs um, uh, ex-president Mahmoud. Uh, oh, no, my guess is that it's a University
0: of Michigan student because I went to the University of Michigan. Okay, I, I actually knew a lot of Iranians there because. He spoke about the University of Michigan football game against Ohio State. So um, my guess is it's probably somebody who graduated from the university. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I do understand that, Leah. Yeah, it's kind of funny just that. um, Yeah, it is. I I was just bringing that up so that people know that Iran has had a long history of supporting uh, black Americans.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's pretty. You know that uh, there are. Uh, because, as I said, that's what's a part of Islam, and uh, um, like freeing slaves uh, has been considered, uh, you know, a religious ritual that wins a lot of, uh, you know, divine reward. So this is something very institutionalized inside uh, the religion of Islam. And so uh, when Imam Khomeini was inspired by Islam to form his uh, political ideology. Um, So that could never be missed out because he was going to lead an oppressed nations movement and um, oppression comes in different forms, including um, slavery, but also um, like what is happening to the um, let's say um, African-Americans.
0: And um, interestingly, um, Malcolm X, for example, um, there are many Black Americans who have found Islam to be liberatory. For example, Malcolm X went uh, converted to mm-hmm. Sunni Islam after going to Mecca. Uh, I believe um, that's where he said he saw everyone in the world. become. Like for him, it was a very spiritual experience. And right. what we do know is that... Some people who were transported as slaves were Muslim and the first Ramadan was celebrated by slaves here in the U.S. And But then that knowledge was lost. But then it seems like Islam came back in the 20th century. So what happened there?
1: Uh, well, a lot of uh, the slaves that were uh, transferred to the uh, United States, I mean, uh, they were forcefully uh, kidnapped and brought to the United States were originally muslims and so when a lot of those you know descendants of those slaves started to learn and um, to read they began exploring their ancestors and the story of their ancestors and they found out that the original religion of say the majority of those slaves was islam so they wanted to know more about the religion of their ancestors and uh, as they started to uh, learn more about Islam. A lot of them found Islam as liberating and pragmatically considering uh, people of all races equal. And by saying that, I don't mean that all Muslims, uh, are, I mean, are free of any form of racism. No, that's not the case. And you know, oh
0: no, of course not.
1: Yeah, and we all know that um, all of us, as human beings, might. Um, um, I mean suffer, I would say, from uh, racism and uh, racist ideas. Of course. Uh, but when when studying the religion, that's what, uh, that's what they found. And uh, it's very easy to find in Islam and a lot of Islamic rituals. For example, um, Malcolm X, you know, that he converted to Islam like many other African-Americans through the Nation of Islam. But when he adopted for them, um, I mean, he... Decided to follow uh, what we call as the like mainstream Islam or Sunni Islam. He traveled to uh, Mecca to perform Hajj, and that's where he found out that how Islam teaches about fighting racism and how in Islam, people of all races are equal. Because a lot of people say um that uh, nation of islam is like kind of reverse racist (laughs) because they try to say yeah because they try to
0: say that okay um anytime somebody mentions the word reverse racist i have to show people this clip i don't know if you've seen this (laughs) yeah no i don't
2: don't you think that's (laughs) (laughs) reverse racism (laughs) i said no i don't think that's reverse racism not because, not because I think reverse racism doesn't exist, right? If you ask some black and brown people, they'll tell you flat out there is no such thing as reverse racism. And I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think there is such a thing as reverse racism. And uh, I, could be, I could be a reverse racist if I wanted to. Uh, all I would need would be a uh, time machine, right? And uh, what I'd do is I'd get in my time machine, I'd go back in time, to before Europe colonized the world, right? And uh, I'd convinced the leaders of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America to uh, invade and colonize Europe, right? Just yeah. occupy them, steal their land and resources, set up some kind of like, I don't know, trans Asian slave trade mm-hmm. where we exported white people to work on <laughs> giant rice plantations That's so in China. True. <laughs> Just ruin Europe over the course of a couple of centuries. So all their descendants would want to migrate out and live in the places where black and brown people come from. But of course, in that time, I'd make sure I set up systems that privilege black and brown people at every conceivable social, political, and economic opportunity. (laughs) White people would never have any hope of real (laughs) self-determination. Just every couple of decades make up some fake war (laughs) as an excuse to go and bomb them back to the Stone Age and say it's for their own good because their culture's inferior. (laughs) Just for kicks. Subject white people to colored people's standards of beauty end up hating the color of their own skin, eyes, and hair. If after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of that, I got on stage at a comedy show and said, hey, what's the deal with white people? Why can't they dance? That would be reverse racism.
0: so true <laughs> okay yes so that's what i tell people the- yeah every that's so ma- true every time i, I mentioned this I, I show them this clip because it's like yeah it's not about the particular ethnicity as much as the history of that ethnicity <laughs> and what happened exactly
1: the- Exactly. and you know a, a lot of people also argue that uh the definition of racism is like when a people are oppressed uh, like so white people are not oppressed. So if you make a racist comment, it, do, it doesn't really mean that, like, I mean, you don't call that reverse racism or whatever.
0: Well, it doesn't have the same power. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the, yeah, I mean, this, this clip tells it very well and everything. It includes everything. So that's the best answer to it. I'm sorry. I'm just going to ask you a
0: quick question just for you to remember at the end, because sure. here's idea, uh, Khomeini's idea of fighting on the side of injustice everywhere in the world sounds a lot like the Mm -hmm. Hindu idea of karma. And I heard that Mm -hmm. Khomeini's um, grandfather was Indian. So was he ever inspired by any of these ideas from India? Just curious, but you don't have to answer. Uh, I I was just curious.
1: (laughs) His grandfather was born in Lucknow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... This, I mean, it is believed that he, his ancestors from, like, came from, like, Kashmir or, like, those parts. No, they came from, I believe, Lucknow in India, which is Uttar Pradesh. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. Since his uh, ancestors were all Muslims, I don't know. Maybe he would be, but I don't know anything about uh,
0: Okay, that. I was just curious. It, because it just sounded exactly like the idea of karma, and I was like, "Uh huh." Right. or it could be that many religions have the
1: thing is yeah the thing is exactly I was going to say that like this is common among all religion maybe they have a different approach on how to fight oppression but they have I mean uh, humanity has the same uh, idea of uh, oppression and uh, that it is like a human responsibility and to fight oppression they may just disagree on how to fight that
0: the reason was because when you mentioned it, it exactly sounded like karma. And I'm like, oh,
1: I, wow. I was just curious.
0: That's all. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so let's go back to the nation of Islam. And you said that the first critique is that they are a reverse racist. We dismiss that as stupid. What's the second critique?
1: Um, the, the second critique also comes from a lot of uh, Muslims, And they say that uh, many of the things, many of the notions (laughs) that the uh, nation of Islam tries to promote are contradictory with uh, what uh, mainstream Islam preaches, which I think has to be studied uh, in the context that they are Uh, preaching. I mean, if you read certain um, Nation of Islam texts, especially from the early years that they started their activities, they may sound very contradictory to Islam as I practice or as many other people practice. But the thing is, first, you have to take into account the context where they were fighting. At those years, uh, a lot of uh, African Americans were not educated. They were illiterate and um, they didn 't know anything about um Islam or other religions as much, and uh, those notions had to be um you know adopted in a way that would appeal to african Americans and to uh, help them more with their struggle so I think this is very important i'm not going to say there is no i, I don't have a judgment of uh, how it is i'm just saying that it has to be studied um within that context and based on the uh, needs and requirements of the the, the time. Also, um, another thing that has to be seriously taken into consideration when studying about the Nation of Islam is that uh, over time, and especially after they had a uh, row with Malcolm X, and then there were issues within the Nation of Islam, and then uh, Minister Farrakhan tried to revive the Nation of Islam, and, um, when he took control of it again and started to develop and promote the nation of Islam again, he changed a lot of things, and uh, they have become uh, in many ways more similar to other uh, fractions of Islam. So I personally don't see that much difference in even a lot of those their rituals and core beliefs are the same, we believe in the same Qur'an, we believe uh, in the same God. Um, so I don't see that much difference, maybe. Uh, so I think that's that's another criticism that comes from uh, many Muslims. Uh,
0: yeah, I've heard many Muslims say that, that's not real Islam. And every <laughs> if you were to like, go to any Imam in any country, any two Imams, they'll say a thousand different things because each one of them... Exactly,
1: yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly, that's true. I have met uh, with Farah Khan, actually.
0: I have had the honor to... Oh, wow, tell us more. What happened when when you met? How did you
1: meet him? What did he say? Um, He was invited to Iran through a conference uh, that was held in Tehran. And I worked as a translator in that conference. I mean, I had a friend who worked there and uh, she asked me to come and help. So, um, the first time that I met a few members, but not, um, uh, Minister Farah Khan, um, uh, I met a few members of the Nation of Islam and those at that camp, and I was telling them about my dissertation at that time I hadn't decided what exactly I was going to Uh work on but I knew it would be about the african-american struggle and um, any of the african-american movement so the meeting inspired me to work on um, the nation of islam because I realized I personally had a lot of misconceptions about the nation of islam um what was your, your misconceptions
0: I probably share the same too
1: Um, One thing it was like what you hear a lot of Muslims say about the nation of Islam that they do not really. Oh, that is not real Islam. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And another thing is the controversy uh, about uh, the assassination of Malcolm X and that some people say. Well, what is that? Do, Do tell us. Yeah, because the, uh, some people say that the Nation of Islam uh, played a role in, uh, you know, the assassination of Malcolm X because they had a role with them and it came after that. But it has never been proved. Uh, even the the people who were, um, you know, sentenced and uh, um, like convicted of his murder later on said that they were not involved. And uh, so there's a lot of controversy. And what I think see from my research and others research is that it was the fbi that played uh, this, the most significant role and they actually wanted to like do some character assassination against the nation of islam and um yeah you know so i i don't think that's i'm not saying that this is for a, cer- a certain thing but to me it looks a very like a very plausible plot
0: Oh, so can you tell us a little bit more about this? I'm intrigued. So I know that he was shot sometime in 1964 or 65 in New York, and he was continuously dogged by the FBI until then. And the difference between him and uh, Martin Luther King is that he was not into compromises at all, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. So, right. how did his assassination happen, and what? part of your research led you to believe it is besides the obvious
1: (laughs) that the uh, FBI (laughs) Um, well there are documents from the FBI that show um, that the FBI, I mean, played uh, a role in the assassination and uh, of, of Malcolm X. And there are many other researchers around the world that have come to that conclusion. They usually raise uh, two or three different uh, theories or possibilities about uh, the assassination of Malcolm X, mm-hmm. uh, which... Uh, is usually around the fact that it was the uh, FBI and CIA that played a role. Mm -hmm. And even if this happened through a member of the the Nation of Islam, it was uh, through infiltration by the FBI. So it wasn't that, for example, there was an order coming from Elijah Muhammad or any other person from uh, the um, Nation of Islam to carry out that Uh, assassination so and you know uh, as I said uh, no one has ever been convicted for sure of uh, assassinating the uh, Malcolm X and as I told you um, there were three convicts and some were freed after I don't know how many years of spending in after appeals uh no, it, they even served their term in prison. Oh, after so, the, oh, so uh,
0: but it was it it wasn't a appeal. Exactly. Did they overturn the conviction or was the
1: conviction there? You mean if they uh Like did it go to the higher court? I don't I don't really remember that uh, because there were two or th- there were three people, one of them even died before finishing his term, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Ah, okay. So
1: they finished their term. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it didn't go to higher um, courts to uh, revision. Yeah, it didn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are so many controversies around that. uh, And there are so many doubts um, surrounding the assassination of Malcolm X. What we know for sure is that it was a very unfortunate tragedy, but it probably made uh, Malcolm X a more powerful leader because a lot of people start to question why an innocent african-american leader has to be assassinated and a lot of people started reading about him and his movements and his struggle and so it always turns out uh, the opposite of what they actually plan to achieve so
0: by the way, you mentioned Elijah Muhammad. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about him and how he is related to the Nation of Islam? Uh,
1: well, he was the original uh, leader, and he, after uh, Farad Muhammad yeah. established uh, the Nation of Islam, within two years he uh, mysteriously disappeared, and then uh, he was appointed as the first leader of the nation of islam he uh, established a lot of uh, the notions of the nation of islam
0: he mysteriously disappeared that part i did
1: not know about that yeah i mean his death or his uh, whereabouts were never confirmed and nobody knows so that's one reason uh, the nation of islam likes to you know believe that he was he had some divine sources or something. So it's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. No, no. I understand too. I mean, because sometimes I wonder, is it even possible for there to be a liberatory movement for black Americans inside of the U S because if you're within the state, they control all the levers. So is it even possible to be inside the U S and work on that? You know what I mean?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, this is something that a lot of people say. But I think there is a lot of, um, I would say, character assassination against the nation of Islam and even Malcolm X at that time. What did they say? Uh, First and foremost, uh, they are portrayed as uh, uh, anti-Semitic. Like uh, Farah Khan is also, yeah, he's like uh, the... Yeah, he is labeled as being the most uh, anti-Semitic leader uh, with a very um, aggressive. Is it because of
0: um, the state that is now known as Israel? Like,
1: is it related to that? Um, not only that, he did talk about um, like Zionist Jews who tried to. Who have control of uh, America's wealth, but also uh, infiltrating African Americans. Yeah. So he he has a lot of very like fiery speeches against the, the <laughs> Zionists and um, their role, both in the United States and outside. Um, and so that's why I think he's considered to be like anti-Semitic, and we all know how that label is used oh, yeah. to demonize, you know, people. Um, there are two books by the Nation of Islam, but not necessarily uh, Minister Farhan himself. It's just uh, like a research book by the Nation of Islam, which, call- which is called The Secret Relationships Between Blacks and Jews. It comes in two volumes. The what kind of relationship? Um, it says like um, how Jews gain control of Black uh, American economy. Uh, so I understand. <laughs>
0: mm. Okay, yeah. I understand. So uh, why, that's, uh, yes, that is a little problematic. Anti-Semitic? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say anti-Semitic. Uh, yes, I
1: know, it's a problematic, deeply problematic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I understand, and I agree with you that probably. That could be considered as, I don't know, maybe anti Semitic or anything. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is, if you consider that um, like anti Semitic, uh, there are a lot of, I mean, examples of rhetoric that can easily be considered as Islamophobic, but you don't see that much controversy and uh, media buzz and attention about it. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but. I think that's one thing that's well there was time
0: when Hillary Clinton said she wanted to obliterate Iran like I can find you a hundred right, right now mm-hmm. one google search mm-hmm. just google anything any American politician says about any Islamic country besides Saudi Arabia and they are calling for genocide
1: even Wendy Sherman who's that exactly and you know Wendy Sherman who serves as uh you know he was she was a top U.S. diplomat during the mm-hmm. uh, Iran uh, nuclear talks, mm-hmm. and she said that this is like exactly what she said that we know that deception is in the DNA of Iranians. Oh
0: my! Like how? Oh my God! This is you know what's really funny. Okay, I'm gonna find this clip because a few weeks ago we were talking about Russia and the. This- CIA person James Cla- James Clapper, he literally said that Russians are genetically programmed to, to co opt and deceive and something crazy wow. like that. Yeah. So this sounds identical. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds really, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: Slightly. yeah, I understand. Like, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I, I would be very cautious to use uh, the word Jews because. I live in a city where Jews, Muslims and Christians live together very peacefully and I would never even consider people's religion. I mean, I have worked in the uh, Christian area and you don't usually ask people what their religion is or yeah. that, that has never been a concern. So, and I I don't I would never ever want to insult any of my Jewish brothers and sisters, so I would be very careful in how I use uh, the words, and uh, I would uh, definitely distinguish between Zionists, Zionists can be of any religion, uh, and Jews, which are like a very respectable um, followers of the religion. But the label of anti-Semitic coming from uh, people who have been the most racist, oppressive, uh, you know, aren't like Islamophobic. And collaborators of Nazis. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like white supremacists, as you said, collaborative Nazis. I don't, I wouldn't accept that as a valid, uh, you know, label for, uh, especially a movement that I see has... Um, gained attention among at least African-Americans who make up more than 40 million of of, uh, uh, the American population.
0: That makes sense. We've done one episode about the formation of Israel and Palestine, and we've seen lots of just open racism and things like that. And so if you're into liberation, you will always make a comment against Israel because it is a very Mm -hmm. cruel state.
3: As part of our efforts to keep the lights on around here, we've paired up with an influencer to help generate more revenue to our channels. Let's check out their first contribution and welcome them to the Historically team. Patrick J. Lohler, take it away. Gosh, what a fun weekend I'm having. Hey, if you're one of those people attacking veterans on the internet for lamenting the fall of Afghanistan, you're a bad person. I don't much care for your half-formed thoughts about American imperialism as you attack the very people that end-stage capitalism forced into the military. Why don't you go look up how they recruit, huh? Really don't love how you all keep ignoring all the horrific things the Taliban has done throughout history and your scramble to criticize the U.S. or the 41 other countries that are part of the International Security Assistance Force, which was in Afghanistan. Frankly, I don't think you care at all about the people of Afghanistan. You just want to yell at people on the internet and take a huge problem and make it small so that you can attack me instead of, you know, doing the internal work of realizing that international conflict is messy and complicated and often has good and bad parts. But like, what would I know? I was only a part of it. And no, I don't feel bad for going. I was a medic. And nothing you can say will change my opinion of the things that I did and experienced there. I helped the people of Afghanistan. What the fuck was that? It's like Dane Cook and Charlotte Clymer had an unloved child. Ugh. Please just go to historically.substock.com and subscribe. Also, check out our YouTube, Twitch, and Rockfin streams. Esha reads you Lennon and dishes on the main villains of Twitter. Like that guy. And other people don't read Lennon.
0: Can you tell us more about other misconceptions? Or also tell us what your research found about the nation of islam
1: well before going to my research i would say like i think it was last february uh not, yeah it was last february when uh, a former um uh, new york department officer sent a letter to uh, i mean um, there was a letter published um and sent to the family of Malcolm X Mm -hmm. uh, from a former uh, New York Police Department staff uh, Mm -hmm. who said that he covertly worked with the FBI. Mm -hmm. uh, And so he couldn't talk about it. And uh, the family of uh, the officer published the letter only after uh, he passed away or something. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm just uh, giving you more hints of, of where... Uh, the Nation of Islam stands in that uh, controversy. And and you know that the family of the, of Malcolm X, who previously had roused with uh, uh, Minister Farah Khan, and uh, at some point there were uh, arguments and they were against each other, they reunited and they are friends. And uh, um, Farah, uh, Minister Farah Khan is very supportive of that family. So this also shows uh, something about the tragedy. Uh, But about my dissertation, my dissertation was focused on the rhetoric of the nation of Islam in two different cases that I decided to study on. One was the Islamic Republic of Iran Uh in the rhetoric of the uh, nation of Islam. And the other one was actually the assassination of Malcolm X and how it was addressed through the, you know, the rhetoric of the nation of Islam. Um, So I found, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, many common, I would say, notions and concepts of uh, freedom and fight against oppression um, between Iran or uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and the nation of islam uh, mainly because they both have the same enemy, which is the u s regime uh-huh. and uh, their oppressive mm-hmm. uh, you know policy uh, at outside the United States and how they sanctioned Iran and how they sup- have supported and armed the enemies of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is more or less the same uh, with regards to the Nation of Islam. And as with uh, the assassination of Malcolm X, um, I I could say that basically it's uh, uh, like how the Nation of Islam um, viewing Elijah Muhammad and then um, Mr. Farah Khan reacted to the allegations that uh, the Nation of Islam played a role in the assassination of Malcolm X. And basically, that's uh, my research. What was
0: the allegation and how did they react to the death of Malcolm X? Uh,
1: well, a few days after the assassination of Malcolm X, uh, Elijah Muhammad had a speech, I think. Yeah, it was on Savior's Day uh, that year, which is like February twenty-six, which marks the birthday of Muhammad, the uh, founder of the Nation of Islam, and um, he said something that could be easily interpreted as justification of the assassination. Uh, he said that Malcolm got uh, what he was preaching because you know the row between uh, Nation of Islam and uh, Malcolm X started when Apparently, of course, there are so many reasons, but apparently started when Malcolm X uh, described the assassination of John F. Kennedy as the chickens coming home to roost. Yeah, the chickens coming home to roost. And that was uh, a remark that Elijah Muhammad uh, seriously opposed. And Why? Well, he said that, um, according to him, that was... Uh, causing more hatred toward uh, African-Americans and the notion of Islam.
0: I don't know if I agree. Like, it's uh, nothing you say per se, like, causes hatred. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's just there, and it's because of thousands of things. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, we live in a world where you have to be very careful about the remarks you make and uh, so that they cannot... You know discredit you mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time like malcolm x was not that type of a person he was very outspoken and actually he was a, a very charismatic very successful public speaker and mm-hmm. the nation of islam owes uh, a lot of its popularity to him like I, I don't think without malcolm x they would have ever become that famous
0: I agree. There was like many things going. He was a great public speaker. He was very good looking. He was very, I don't know how to explain it, but he was very persuasive and energetic that Mm -hmm. people liked, enjoyed watching him speak and they'd come to his events.
1: Right. Yeah, that's true. So he, yeah, he said, um, he said that this is the reason they uh, Malcolm X's assassination was uh, what he got. uh, I mean, he got what he preached. So but at the same time, he denied any involvement, and um, uh, he and uh, and later on uh, Farrakhan also denied, strongly denied any involvement, and then they said that this was never something that they would want to do, and uh, at some point Farahhan even apologized and said that I apologize for any. Comments or remarks that I made and might have led to the situation that led to the assassination. And there are people who use that to say that, okay, you see, he, he even apologized for having had a <laughs> role in the assassination, which is like very definite. So, okay, if there's one mm-hmm. thing that's bad faith, that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For anyone who's interested in knowing more about the, like, especially the theories around the assassination of Malcolm X and uh, who was involved, I would recommend them. Um, uh, there is a Swedish uh, scholar of uh, theology and religions. is um, a teacher at the University of Uppsala, Sweden, and he has written many books on the nation of Islam. Uh, his name is Matthias Gardo. Okay. I guess we should also have him on eventually,
0: if possible. Thank you for that. Oh. Yeah, if
1: you can contact him, let me know, because I I contacted him uh, uh, I mean, a few years ago, and I never got a response, but you could be successful.
0: The only person who has
1: not responded to
0: my request for an interview is Mahmoud Najad. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I tried contacting him too. Through- he loves interviews. I know, so. I know. And I'm like very annoyed. And I keep so um if you anyone listening who knows Mahmoudine... ah Ahmadine. I'm so sorry. I normally don't get it's it okay. <laughs> I just <laughs> yes, him. Please uh hook us up, okay? okay yeah i hope you will get someone Yeah. so now um how did the nation of islam evolve through the 60s and 70s to where it is now and have they had a relationship with people in iran and what is the connection
1: there uh well minister farahan was first invited i think in 1996 if i'm not mistaken by the then president Rafsanjani to attend the annual uh, rally in support of the Islamic revolution, which is usually, it's like a national celebration uh-huh. um, where people come out uh, for a rally and celebrate the anniversary of the Islamic revolution. Uh-huh. Uh, so the second time uh, was when I first met him a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, that should be, I think it was in 2016 or 2015. I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact dates. I could check, but I don't remember exactly now. So he was invited as part of a conference, which, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was a conference on police brutality against African-Americans.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that? What did he say there when you met him and what was going on? Uh, The first time
1: I met him, it was very brief. Mm, uh, I actually was a translator for the top um, spiritual Mm -hmm. advisor or I would say spiritual how can I say yeah I mean as I said there were a lot of reforms within the nation of Islam and they used to for example use the words temple and then later on they started to use the word mosques because they wanted to gradually uh, change things and they wanted to use words and expressions that were more familiar to the African-American population at that time. So when uh, Louis Farah Khan reformed the Nation of Islam, he appointed one of the grandchildren of Elijah Muhammad as the spiritual leader or advisor of the Nation of Islam. And uh, he uses the title Imam. Mm -hmm. So he's Imam Sultan Rahman. And I was a translator for him. He was invited to the conference. And... Teaches Quran. He leads the Friday prayer at Mosque Maryam, in which is like the headquarters of the Nation of Islam in Chicago. And he's he was a very nice person. He was he had learned Arabic and he had he lived for some time in Saudi Arabia where uh. he learned <laughs> Arabic. Ah, yeah, him. but no. <laughs> yeah, he, they don't have any support. I mean, at, at some point they had, uh, I mean, I think they received some funds from Saudi Arabia at some point. But right now, no, they don't have any support from them. Okay. Uh, and actually, his I think his father died in Saudi Arabia. So I don't think he's he has very good memories of Saudi Arabia. Or, yeah. It's a horrible, I mean, it's a horrible country. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's the regime, of course. Yeah, because they are the uh, one of the main uh, reasons we have the Zionist regime yet. In yeah. That region. So that's, <laughs> that's for me, that's the biggest reason to oppose that regime.
0: So what was your dissertation focusing on then?
1: Uh, as I said, it was like an... Uh, An analysis of the rhetoric of the Nation of Islam, which uh, was meant to offer some insight on uh, the language use, the notions that they focus on, the the structure of the movement or organizations, the hierarchy and how Mm -hmm. the positions within them and how they use the media to convey their messages. So it was like a 10-step analysis of Nation of Islam's rhetoric on the two topics that I told you. Can you talk
0: about their rhetoric on the Islamic Republic of Iran, and especially during the revolution?
1: Uh, sure. Um, it's very interesting how the Nation of Islam describes the U.S. establishment or the U.S. regime as uh, When Elijah Muhammad used to say that uh, Mm -hmm. the devil is white, Uh it wasn't like a racist notion, (laughs) probably. (laughs) They wanted to say that. But, you know, it was meant to, you know, give the impression to African-Americans that the white supremacist establishment is your first enemy. Uh,
0: Yes, it is. You know what I mean? I mean, I would also Mm -hmm. say that, the devil is henry kissinger
1: yeah the rhetoric is problematic i'm
0: not saying um because he doesn't die mm-hmm. and he may have smell of sulfur and i don't know why he's not dead yet <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so
1: yeah <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people consider his rhetoric as problematic. Uh, but y- you also need to understand what he was trying to deliver. I mean, you know, because I'm, I consider myself a researcher, I don't have a judgment on whether this is good or bad. Correct. I'm just trying to say what it is. So I don't have a judgment. Like. Minister Farah Khan also describes the, the supremacist, the white the uh, U.S. establishment as the great Satan. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, Ayatollah Khomeini used to describe. Shaitan. Yeah. yeah, the great shaitan or Satan, as uh, we say. Uh, The United States regime. And it's very interesting that in one meeting uh, with uh, Farah Khan, you know, there were a lot of people there and I was there too. And he was saying that, uh, why do you think, I'm I'm just uh, trying to say what he meant to say. I'm like, I don't remember the exact words, but this is what he was uh, saying that imam khomeini said that the u.s is the great satan Uh um you have to think about that like what are the main i would say like features or vices of satan one is that he cannot be trusted he he makes a promise to you but he never does that promise yep it's called a faustian bargain right exactly i
0: mean he was referring to the nuclear talks wait wait, wait hold on wait, wait was it khomeini or Khomeini that said the united states was the great Satan? i mean uh, imam khomeini was the first one oh, who okay said because that. You, uh, you then said nuclear yeah talks. but you hear that from him too oh okay i see i see and i was a little confused because the nuclear mm-hmm. talks happened after he died so yeah
1: yeah of course i mean imam khomeini uh, said uh, that the, the united states is the greatest satan uh because of all the atrocities and uh you know evil uh imperialist ambitions and how what they have done to a lot of the nations but minister farah khan's description of why imam khomeini or others or him he himself calls um the united states as the greatest satan was that he cannot be trusted like satan cannot be trusted satan is like in islam is believed to Uh, make promises to people to tempt them to commit sins but uh, at the end he says uh, that uh, well of course I was like lying like what do you expect from Satan coming so this is the same thing that you, you would expect coming from the U.S. and it's funny that at the end of the day that's actually what happened and so Trump withdrew from the deal and he had no respect for the promises and the commitments that they had to make. Um, through that and it's not only the Iranian the Iran nuclear talk it's just any international everything yeah I mean and any international treaty he has withdrawn from a lot of them and I think it's not even only Trump it's the U.S. establishment that um, even if they don't withdraw from uh, an international deal, they do not feel committed and they, can, they feel like they're the police and they, they're the boss.
0: I mean, people in my show know the U.S. interest is a resource extraction. They are willing to go to any length for that,
1: right? Right, that's true.
0: So what did you find about the similarities and differences, I guess?
1: Well, as I said, I think we both have the same enemy, which is the white supremacist regime in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's also that we have been put on sanctions, like really cruel, inhuman sanctions by the United States. Can you talk about the sanctions? Sure. So sanctions have been imposed on uh, Iran um, since the early years of the Islamic Revolution, but they, they I mean, in different rounds uh, uh, and with different um, either acts by the United States or the Security Council, the UN Security Council, more and more sanctions were imposed on Iran uh, over different um, pretexts, including its uh, nuclear activity, which was never, ever proved to be uh not peaceful it's very funny that the international atomic uh, energy agency verified the peacefulness of uh, iran's nuclear activities several times and can you talk about the fatwa from 1980
0: about nuclear weapons in iran that i believe it was imam not not imam
1: sorry (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah that's true So, um, yeah, I mean, despite um, the verifications by the Atomic Agency, the U.S. and some European countries pushed for um, reducing Iran's uh, nuclear activity, which was always meant for peaceful uh, programs. And it's famously known that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, issued a fatwa, and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini also uh, Endorsed that uh, it would be forbidden under any conditions to develop uh, weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear weapons. And it's very interesting also to know that during Saddam's war on Iran, uh, Saddam um, used chemical weapons against Iran, mm-hmm. and uh, those uh, those chemical weapons were provided to him by certain European countries, including Germany. And Imam Khomeini said at that time that you, I mean, Iran has, or he said to the army and everyone that um, we will never, ever use similar forms of weapons, only conventional weapons. And even with uh, conventional weapons, they were to defend our countries and our sovereignty. There were severe protocols that uh, Imam Khomeini advised Iranian army Mm -hmm. um, to observe in uh, like self-defense. So uh, the fatwa is still in place. It hasn't changed. And Ayatollah Khomeini has always insisted that under no circumstances we would uh, develop nuclear weapons because that's against humanity and that's against our uh, religious beliefs and values. Uh, But that's something that you know the main, mainstream media would never want you to focus on.
0: I've said this many times. I think every country that, that is under attack in the U.S. needs nukes because otherwise you're going to get what happened to Gaddafi. But that's another story. And I've gotten into tr- trouble with mm-hmm. this. But I know that you guys do have really good uh, missile technology because last year I was really impressed by how they hit this U.S. weapons base but they killed zero people because that missile was super accurate. Like that never happens in the U.S. Okay. By the way, did the U.S. sell the Shah any nuclear, any like weapons of mass destruction? Because I wonder if a lot of it, is there paranoia about that?
1: Uh, well, uh, it's funny that uh, Iran's nuclear program actually started under uh, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi and uh, the U.S. was, one of the main supporters of that uh, program. So it's only became um, forbidden and bad when the Islamic Republic of Iran wanted to uh, I mean do it. yeah, that's it. yeah,
0: recently, like two weeks ago, where there was something shipped from Iran to Venezuela, and the u s. just seized it, and oh, what did they do with it after they seized it? I forgot. Uh, oh yeah, they sold that in the black market right?
1: <laughs> yes, that's what there is.
0: Oh, by the way, is there anything else? We definitely want to have you back again to talk more about various other things in Iran. But is there anything else that you want to talk about that we have not addressed yet?
1: Um, no, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, pretty much, I mean, I don't remember anything that uh, in particular that I would want to say or have missed out.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Can you tell us where people can find your work?
1: Uh, Sure. They can follow me on Twitter. Lilako L-E-E-L-A-K-O. That's my Twitter. They can also maybe Google my name and find my interviews.
0: Oh, yeah. We'll put the links to some of your interviews here. And thank you so much for joining us. And I know it was a little hard to connect, but I'm so glad we did. Um, I'd love to Thank have you, you back and um, good luck with everything. Thank you. With that, I will say yeah, Khuda hafiz. That's the same word we say in Hindi, so I'm guessing that's the Persian word, right? Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it means God bless hafiz. you or something? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah. God protect you. God protect you. you. Yes. Yeah, that's what we say for goodbye. <laughs> yeah, Khuda <hafiz. laughs> The music for this show is done by RecTech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H And thank you for listening to our show.